Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And we've got a special episode for y'all today. We are going to break down this week's Democratic debate that was hosted in Atlanta. And to join me for that, we have two of our wonderful interns. Joining us today is Kelly Dobso. Kelly, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. And also joining us today is Olivia Bauer. Olivia, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So for this first segment, we are going to talk about the debate that happened in Atlanta this week, but we are going to do so from the perspective of a national view on this debate. Uh, Yet again, it feels like every now and then Atlanta becomes the center of the political universe, all of Washington and all of politics descends on the peach state. And so we had that a little bit this week with all 10 presidential candidates coming to town, or at least all 10 that were on stage. We also had a couple in town that actually weren't on stage. Um, So let's go ahead and dive in and talk about this debate from a national perspective. And I think the first thing that stood out to me was this debate had a little bit more of a substantive discussion on foreign policy than we've seen in previous debates. But one place where the conversation kind of continued from prior debates was on Tulsi Gabbard's attacks on Pete Buttigieg and sort of Pete Buttigieg as embodying the sort of centrist, what she might argue, somewhat militaristic approach to foreign policy. Kelly, what were some of your takeaways from the foreign policy discussion in this debate? Yeah, so I'm glad that they discussed foreign policy. Um, It's something that has been lacking in the previous debates. So I feel like there were differences within the candidates and their perspectives on foreign policy. So we see, you know, the moderates take a slightly different stance than the more progressives do. And even with the progressives, you know, Bernie takes a different stance than Warren does. And I think that's really notable. And it's very interesting. So overall, it seemed that progressives such as Bernie Sanders seem to focus more on the humanitarian impacts that the intervention in wars may have um, because they discuss um, some Saudi Arabia connections and relations. And then something that he also brought up was Israel-Palestine conflicts. Um, and so he said, you know, Palestine or Palestinians should still have rights as well. And then on the other hand, uh, more of the moderates, such as Pete Buttigieg, he has more of a militaristic view where he said um, this past week that we should send troops to Mexico in order to combat the cartels. So there was some very distinct viewpoints. And then also Biden was called out for his support for the Gulf and Iraqi war, um, which was very interesting. So there was some stark contrast that I was glad to see. And Kelly, why in your view, you know, we haven't had a lot of this discussion so far, at least in, in a way that I would think is adequate. Why, in your view, were you pleased to see the focus put on foreign policy a little more starkly than we'd seen in other debates? Yeah, so I think that foreign policy is an extremely important part of the role as president. You have so much power within it, you have to establish relationships within it. And I think we really see that more now with the Trump presidency than ever before, just because we're seeing, you know, our allies being upset, um, such as like the European leaders, and then also the president making connections with dictators and people who may not be have the best interests at hand, um, such as Putin and um, the leader of North Korea, and then also the leader of um, Saudi Arabia. So I think it's really important that we start to focus on this because 
the president has so much power within foreign policy. And it's something that a lot of citizens don't talk about as much as well. And we, as Americans, we only think about American-based issues and not necessarily the world around us. So I think it's really important that we got to talk about that. Yeah, I thought that that focus was really interesting, too. I think the thing that stands out to me about the conflict between the most direct conflict that you saw, I think, on this issue was between Pete Buttigieg and Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard continued to go after him. She was the one who levied this claim that Pete Buttigieg wants to send military to Mexico to deal with issues related to drug cartels. And I think that this sort of draws out some of the really distinct differences between the wings of the party on foreign policy issues. You have somebody like Pete Buttigieg, who values like international alliances, using international cooperation to address issues like drug cartels or or national security, things like that, but does so with a willingness to extend American military power in a somewhat limited way, but in a way that I think Tulsi Gabbard might argue is reckless or too aggressive or too militaristic. At issue here was this quote from Pete Buttigieg in a forum where he said he would he would consider sending troops to Mexico as a part of some sort of a security agreement. It sort of, to me, when I heard this, it sounded like the general Obama-era approach to fighting terrorism around the world by not invading countries, not making large-scale military commitments but by using smaller, more mobile military units to describe what I think was often described as sort of a law enforcement activity. I mean, that is sort of the vision that I heard from Buttigieg in the the quote prior to the debate and in the way that he then sort of defended his own view during the debate. I think somebody like Tulsi Gabbard comes at this issue and says, even these security agreements are based, sort of grounded in this idea that we have a militaristic approach to foreign policy and that the military is the first tool that gets used. I think Buttigieg later tried to clarify his remarks and say this sending troops to Mexico was kind of a last resort idea. But I think Gabbard would argue that considering military at all is, is a step too far and that things like the way American military power has been extended around the globe has had bad consequences, not only for America's opinion as viewed by other nations, but also for people living around the world. And I think that's why she chose to hit him on that. Olivia, how does that conversation land for you when you're thinking about candidates' views on foreign policy? Is there one vision there that's more persuasive to you? Um, or, or what were some of your takeaways from the foreign policy discussion? Yeah, well, I, I was definitely expecting for Buttigieg to be receiving some attacks after that new poll came out in Iowa with him ahead. But uh, I think what Tulsi Gabbard was attacking him for was his sort of traditional view of foreign policy, which is really similar to that of Biden's, where they both have this theme of wanting to return to like this pre-Trump American global dominance, where we're sort of enforcing the laws of the world. And it's just very sort of like through the institutions and increasing global trade, things like that. And Buttigieg has said that he wants to repeal the authorized use of military force, which I, I think is a very it would be a very, very popular foreign policy for Democrats at this time because of the way that Trump has wielded his executive power and putting a check on executive power by repealing that and sort of returning that power to declare war to Congress would be really popular. 
And he's also said that he's in favor of reentering the Iran deal and rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, which I'm sure are other foreign policies that the other Democratic candidates would be in favor of. Uh, I have heard Cory Booker say that he would be interested in renegotiating the Iran deal. I think he mentioned that in a previous debate. So he's the only one that might differ there. But I think just overall, those are going to be the popular foreign policies of these candidates. But there is a distinct line between the sort of traditional foreign policy of Biden and Buttigieg and the more progressive foreign policy of Warren and Sanders and even uh, Senator Harris, because theirs are more critical of this liberal international order that's sort of, it's the trade, um, the global trade, the way it's organized right now, they are arguing that it's failing the working class and they want a new international order that's going to be better. And it's, it's, it's hard to even critique it because it's not super clear. It's really based on values and ideas about, you know, wanting to project American values around the world. They're really into diplomacy. Like uh, Sanders mentioned last night that he's pro-Israel, but he wants to facilitate discussions between Israel and Palestine and also Iran and Saudi Arabia, and he wants to stop cozying up to the dictators because they don't align with our values. And I actually, I really appreciated that he was the only one that brought up uh, what's going on in Palestine right now, given that this past week, uh, Secretary Pompeo returned or he changed the U.S. stance that Israeli settlements in Gaza are in line with international law, or he said that they are in line with international law now. So I appreciated him taking a stance on that because it seems like a lot of the other candidates that are more traditional in their foreign policy views are less critical of Israel. And uh, yeah, most of the pol- uh, the candidates also talked about how they wanted to end the war on terror and they talked about being anti-Iraq war. So it seems that most of the candidates who are more progressive are sort of leading with their values and the ideologies that they want to project around the world rather than candidates who are more moderate, like Klobuchar, who were st- talking about making a new START treaty and more specific ways of advancing diplomacy and institutions. So one way in which you see the foreign policy issues colliding with domestic policy issues is that the question of impeachment is fundamentally a question of, did the President of the United States abuse his authority in the significant authority he has to conduct foreign policy. And as you can imagine, impeachment came up as a a pretty big discussion point in this debate. Um, But it was it was significant, but it was sort of brief, because I think what you saw across the field was that candidates had a relatively similar view of this issue. Democrats have increasingly been unified around the idea that impeachment proceedings should continue and that the the conduct of the president is serious and and deserves uh, more stringent congressional oversight. Kelly, what did you think of the way that the candidates approached the question of impeachment? Yeah, so I think they approached it as a a unifying message as well, saying that we still completely back the impeachment inquiry and, you know, that there's corruption within the government. And so that's something that Warren comes back to a lot is that this this just enhances like our conversation on how corrupt this government is and how corrupt this administration is in particular and how with these testimonies we saw that 
Sondland described that uh, Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence were in the loop with it. So it was really just an entire organization that knew about this and that was okay with it and that didn't speak up about it. And so Klobuchar also made a good argument and she described Trump and how his character and who he cares about and how it only really benefits himself as well. And it's very internalized. Also interesting to note is that Biden, when he talks about Trump and his message of why he wants to run for president, it's always about, well, after I become president, um, Republicans will want to work together again. They'll want to be bipartisan. But in reality, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I don't know if it's a good message for him as well, considering that Republicans are defending Trump so much right now, um, especially with like Lindsey Graham and Devin Nunes. Um, it's kind of naive, I, I would say, to say that just when I get the presidency, that everything will be okay and that there'll be cooperation again. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to look at the last few years. I mean, I thought Ballin, I thought Biden's argument was hard to validate prior to him and his son and, and the conduct that is alleged by President Trump and Republicans on Capitol Hill. Prior to all of that happening, I thought his uh his message was a tough one to stand on when you look back at the Obama era and the fact that shortly after president Obama was elected, Mitch McConnell uh, was quoted as saying that he has one job, one mission now, and that is to make sure that Barack Obama is a one-term president. That was really the beginning of heightened partisanship and heightened procedural warfare from Republicans against Democrats. And then the fact that Hunter Biden has now become central to President Trump's arguments on impeachment and the way in which Republicans are defending President Trump on Capitol Hill, it really, to me, it just strikes me as it's a, it's a difficult case for him to make unless he believes that he's going to win 49 states and, and completely change the electoral map in 2020. The other thing, though, about Biden that stood out to me was he continued to fumble some of these questions. He just doesn't look to me, as compelling of a candidate on stage as, as you might think. Olivia, what did you think of Biden's performance overall across the night? Well, he just seemed to stumble through the performance. And then after making all of these gaffes, he has this closing statement at the end where he's trying to invigorate the crowd and saying, get up on your feet and let's make uh, America, you know, back to how it was before Trump, basically that's kind of his whole theme of, of what he was trying to say throughout the evening. And it just, he hadn't really said anything to inspire that, you know, he had, he had made lots of fumbles when he said that he, the only black female Senator had endorsed him, but Kamala Harris was standing right next to him on the stage. And then at another time in the night, he said he wanted to end domestic violence by just punching it and punching it, which was just a really unfortunate choice of words. And then even for the, also, he said that he comes out of the black community in terms of his support, which Booker and Harris both ended up sort of jumping on him for that because it was just, it was very badly worded. And it just seems like he keeps continuously failing to inspire the electorate, but his poll numbers haven't like really faltered. So I'm not sure if any past debates are an indication, if any of these mess ups are going to impact him in the polls. So one candidate I thought was really compelling, really coherent in, in the arguments that he was making was Cory Booker. And Cory Booker sort of flipped the script on Joe Biden late in this debate. 
Kelly, what point did Cory Booker make towards the end of this debate that uh, when he really uh, took on Joe Biden? Yeah, so Cory Booker rebuted a point that Joe Biden had made the past week saying that marijuana should not be legalized. Um, And so Cory Booker had this really strong message and he's funny too. He made it a funny, a funny, uh, lighthearted kind of jab at him. And he said, you know, I was disheartened when you said that. Um, I thought you might've been high when you said it. And that got a lot of attention and it made a lot of people laugh and it was funny. And he kind of addressed Joe Biden and saying, you know, you can't sit here and say that you are for all of these issues, but you know, you don't address things such as marijuana and marijuana has been legal for those who are privileged and those who are white for a long time now, but it disproportionately affects people of color. So he really tried to attack him there. And that's where Joe Biden slipped up and he stumbled a lot. And he said, you know, about how he has so much support for the black, uh, from the black community. And he came out of the black community and that's where he, um, stumbled out over his words and said that Kamala Harris basically just erased Kamala Harris's presence in the Senate by saying that he's endorsed by the only African-American woman elected to the Senate while Kamala Harris is the second one. So I thought that was a really, really strong point from Cor Booker and probably the highlight of the night for me as well. So what do y'all make of the, the tension between this? I mean, I've been struck by the fact that Cory Booker is really good in these formats. And I thought that the way in which he came back and attacked Biden on the issue of marijuana legalization showed how tactically sound his strategy was because this actually came later in the conversation after there was a discussion on um, other issues of race and and systemic racism. And Cory Booker sort of lightheartedly dodged a question or, or sort of purposefully set that question aside to then come back and make this point at Joe Biden, but then he did it in a way where it didn't actually feel like a politician, like ignoring a question to say their own thing that they wanted to say. Like he, he did it in a way that was like, he should have been part of that conversation and it made perfect sense for him to address it the way that he did and to do it with humor. I think even adds to the fact that people sort of welcomed it instead of just seeing it as a partisan attack on his rival. He's good in these formats Kamala Harris, also pretty good in these formats. Joe Biden is the one with the high poll numbers. Joe Biden is the one who has a really durable polling lead in South Carolina, the early state that is that has a heavily African-American electorate. And despite his slip ups, despite what he said on marijuana legalization, maybe not appealing to a younger African-American electorate that may be more attuned to some of the criminal justice issues that are tied in with marijuana. He doesn't pay a price for that in the polls. What do y'all make of the sort of tension there or like why these things seem to not be lining up for Booker and Harris the way that you might assume? Yeah, I think it's mostly to do with his name recognition and also the fact that his name is so tied to Obama's name And also he does just have that experience. He kind of exudes the experience of just talking about how he's been, how long he's been in government for. He was elected a senator when he was 29. So I think it's easy to trust that he would be a good opponent for Trump and that he would really, he could possibly win. I think there's a good chance that he would beat him. But I think that's the things that Kamala Harris and Cory Booker were saying were really important because I think that some of them 
haven't really been said in previous election cycles. And one of the things that Kamala Harris said that really stood out for me last night was that politicians just come to black communities when they want the votes and they come and ask what their issues are so they can cater to them during elections. But then after that, they sort of, you know, leave and don't come back and interact and hear their voices until the next election. And I thought that was a really important thing to say because I think that usually during election cycles, it really is about catering and they're not actually having, these communities aren't actually having their voices heard in politics. And I think this is one of the first times I've seen someone sort of stand on stage and say, you know, we're the backbone of this party or at least one of the major groups in this party. And you're just kind of using us for votes and not really solving our issues and not really listening to us. Yeah, I completely agree with Olivia as well. I think it's two things for his poll numbers. One is the name recognition for both um, Joe Biden and also Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. So Joe Biden obviously has a ton of name recognition, probably the most name recognition out of anybody who's running for president right now. And then Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, people don't know those names unless they really pay attention to politics. Um, And then for the second point, I think that a lot of it, too, is that these debates are not they aren't getting the best numbers. A lot of people aren't watching them and they're more just watching maybe the highlights on the next day on the news instead of watching the full two hours, three hours. And we've also this is a fifth debate. So people just might not be watching it until the very end or until like the last debate where it's maybe against Trump. So maybe people just aren't watching and seeing that Joe Biden is struggling to make a cohesive, coherent argument, and he's stumbling over his words and messing up a lot. So it could be that as well. So let's do some final thoughts here. What were either some other policies that were discussed or some other angles on this debate, Olivia, that stood out to you as we kind of wrap this up here? Well, I really appreciated that they weren't just doing the same broad topics that they have been doing for basically all four of the past debates. You know, I feel like a lot of people watching are just getting kind of bored hearing about the same healthcare debates and the same things every time. And this time they spoke about more specifics such as child care and a lot of election reform. And they talked about um, more foreign policy, as we mentioned before. And I just really appreciated hearing the specifics of those more niche plans. Like we heard about how Harris's child care plan would offer six months paid leave And she talked about the pay gap in her discussion of that. And she sort of mentioned uh, how the burden of taking care of children and taking care of your parents uh, falls more on women in this country. And she wants a specific plan to focus on that, specifically for women of color, because they have an increased burden because of their increased pay gap. And then when Klobuchar mentioned her child care plan, which would be a three-month pay leave, she specifically mentioned her plans to fund that and how we need to be fiscally responsible. And she uh, differentiated herself from Trump by saying that he just sort of makes, he doesn't explain his funding and she will be a more fiscally responsible and transparent candidate. So it's like they sort of, uh, you can see their values through the ways that they asserted these smaller plans, you know, Klobuchar's fiscal responsibility and Harris's, uh, you know, more, her values and her voice for marginalized people really came through. Yeah, I was also reminded, and we're going to talk in our second segment about this debate from a Georgia perspective, but when they were discussing the child care issue, I was also reminded that 
one of the few one of the things that has been largely forgotten about the 2018 election in Georgia was that Stacey Abrams was very good on policy. She had very detailed policy plans. And one of the most detailed ones she had that sort of laid out in a way that you could understand an issue was her child care plan. You know, we haven't seen similar policy proposed in the state because she does not hold the governor's mansion right now. But to have that discussion come back up and to see candidates speaking to some of those same issues, it was just a reminder of, of some of the policy discussions we've had on this show and about challenges that we face in this state. Kelly, what were what were some of your final thoughts? Yeah, so I thought Bernie had a really good night. He's consistently been very strong, had the same talking points, but um, I, he, he said something really great last night. He basically said, you know, we're called divisive. The country is really divisive right now. We have divisive rhetoric. And he said, you know, the majority of people actually want minimum wage to be increased. They want gun reform. We want action taken on climate change. I thought that was really a really great point because it's true. A lot of people do um, support some of the same issues, but it's just a matter of which candidate and which policy, which I thought was a really great point. And secondly, I really enjoyed that they brought up a lot of racial justice issues. So Cory Booker and Warren had really great points as well. Um, Booker had a really strong night. And so a point that Cory Booker made on the foreign policy side was about human rights violations and saying that, yes, we should call out other countries' human rights violations, such as China, but we also need to stop our own. And he was referring to um, the human rights violations at the border with the detention centers, which I thought was a really great point. And then Warren, on the other hand, she was talking about women's rights and um, more about the college affordability and student loans. And she brought up the point that black women are more likely to get loans, but then also um, a few years down the line after they graduate, they are more likely to not be able to pay it off versus their white counterparts. Um, And so that was to bring in that her student loan forgiveness, student loan debt forgiveness would even the gap of um, just the racial disparity within student loans, which I thought it was a really great point and to really really tie in considering we didn't really talk about college affordability this debate. Yeah, well, the candidates certainly did cover a lot of ground. And you, I think in this debate, you did see, as y'all were talking about, a way of candidates using policies, even ones that are less high profile than the ones that we've discussed before, to demonstrate their values and say more about their candidacy than you would just say by saying, I support this plan and that plan and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think we are going to leave our national conversation there. Um, so Kelly and Olivia, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. So that was our conversation with a national look on the debates today. Check out the other episode in our feed that we uploaded today where Natalie Spire and Peyton Childers joined to talk about the debate from a Georgia-based perspective. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all. Oh, 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 oh,